It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 146, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Dylan Strike has been the owner of Strike Farms in Bozeman, Montana since 2014. In 2017, he increased production from four acres to 14 in order to edge out national produce players in his local grocery stores. Strike Farms also markets through a CSA throughout the greater Bozeman region. We dig into the nuts and bolts behind the dramatic expansion at Strike Farms, including how Dylan financed the expansion and the associated land purchase. Dylan gets real as he discusses the challenges of putting together the financial package, managing staff and systems through the expansion, and the impact of what Dylan says was the worst weather year imaginable. We also dig into the changes in equipment and production approaches, the administrative systems that allowed Strike Farms to grow, as well as crop rotations, distribution strategies, and breaking into new grocery accounts. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com and by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. Farmersweb.com. Dylan Strike, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks for having me. So glad you could join us here in, in I guess it's now, it's already the middle of November. I'm not quite sure how this year is moving so quickly. Um, I'd like to start off today by having you tell us about Strike Farms there in Bozeman, Montana. How many vegetables are you growing? Where are you marketing those? How are you getting those to market? As of this year, we're growing um, on 20 acres cultivated. And of that, we did 14 in vegetables this year, kept the remaining six in full season cover crop. That's kind of over the last few years being in business, kind of our breakdown, try to keep a third out completely every year. So we're growing those 14 acres of veggies, about an acre of that is cut flowers. Um, We do a lot of greenhouse production as well. So 14 in the field and then have um, four 30 by 96 tunnels, a 30 by 72 rolling tunnel. And our original little greenhouse is an 18 by 36. Um, That one's heated and the two of the larger 30 by 96 tunnels are heated as well. That's kind of the basic production we're doing. And then we market that through uh, CSA. We do a summer and a winter CSA. So basically June through the end of January into February, kind of our CSA season. Um, We do uh, a majority of our sales, like over 50% is wholesale and really focusing on grocery store sales and, um, Kind of larger institutions haven't really messed around with uh, restaurants too much. We will sell the restaurants, but we don't um, put an emphasis on that and try to get those accounts um, too much. And then uh, we also have done farmers markets for the last four years. Um, that's something we're actually considering not doing in the future. Um, now that we've, we're a little more established with our CSA community and wholesale is picking up and I just purchased a property this winter. So I actually 
own some property now. The last three years I've been on lease ground. And so there's some opportunities to do an on-farm stand and have some more traffic coming through there. So we might put our energy into that rather than trying to be at different markets every week. And I guess as far as history, this year is a big jump for the farm. The first three years, we were growing four acres of vegetables and did that every year. And this past year decided for some reason to triple in size and jump from, so we had six cultivated um, and two of those were in cover crop every year. So jumped from six acres cultivated to 20 and we were on one property and now we're actually managing four separate properties in the one I purchased is kind of in the middle and the other ones are two miles in either direction. So it's, this has been a big uh, change for us as far as scale and kind of just ramping everything up all at once. Now, you said that you chose to do that for some reason, but there must have been some reason that drove you to scale up so rapidly in one year. Yep. Um, so big part of it is just my personality. I'm really bad at doing things incrementally. If I have an idea and kind of see where I could be, it's hard for me to just kind of sit still and be at a at that lower spot. Um, but the a big part of the motivation is I'm really mission driven and that kind of my mission with the farm is I really want to normalize local food. And for those first three years, um, kind of, I really like Richard Wiswall's book and that's kind of what has allowed me to grow pretty fast. When I first started, I was managing another farm and at that point I was still totally idealistic and was okay thinking that I would never make any money and just work really hard. And then I, the winter I started managing that farm and I was fully managing the business that year. I read Richard's book and kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh, we can actually make money here. And so kind of tested it out on that farm, which was a year before I started mine, basically just the crop enterprise budgeting and growing things that actually make money. And so for the first three years, starting 2014 was my first year as my own business on those four acres. The first year gross was like 116. And then second year was just over 200,000. And then the third year was just shy of 300,000 and kind of did that by just really picking and choosing the crops and markets I was selling to. And so it didn't increase our land at all, but almost tripled our gross sales off of the same acreage, but kind of got to the point where couldn't max it too much more. And I was having to really specifically choose who I sold to and having to say no to a lot of people because I just had to go for the highest price point since I was trying to just make more gross off of the same area. And so a big part of it was wanting to be able to say yes and to get more food into more places and specifically grocery stores. It's been a big part of our focus and we're at a scale where it's hard to have everything all the time. Not because we couldn't produce it on a weekly basis, but because we had like 10 different places all wanting large orders and we only had enough for five places. So that was part of it, the demand, but also wanting to just make it easier for the stores and easier for the customers. And so by jumping to a bigger scale, we're able to drop our prices a little bit and make it just an easy decision for a produce manager that the price works. They can put it on the shelf at the same price as California Organic. And then from the customer's perspective, we have professional looking packaging for grocery store sales. 
So it's the same price side by side. Basically, kind of what we're trying to do is instead of hoping that we can get everyone to convert to going to farmers markets or becoming a CSA member to just get the food where people are already shopping and ask them to make a small change. So when they go to the store and they see our stuff, that's like a 10% behavior change. They just have to shift their hand over a foot or two and grab our lettuce mix instead of the earthbound lettuce mix versus trying to convince somebody to go down to the farmer's market every Tuesday from 5 to 8 p.m. and not really know what's going to be there and to make that life change. So a big part of it is just trying to make it local and organic in our area normal so that it's not some huge shift that consumers have to do in order to get the best food for their families. So when you say that scaling up allowed you guys to sell your produce at a lower price, can you tell me a little bit about how that worked? What I was doing before is I, especially in my grocery store accounts, every grocery store in the produce department has a different margin they have to get on their products. And it's actually a pretty shocking range. Um, pretty standard is like 40% margin. So I just originally based my pricing kind of on like the absolute highest they could sell and be able to make it, but they weren't able to buy much volume um, or a lot of the stores weren't. There's a couple of stores that they run a really low margin. And so from the get-go, they were great. They paid the same price or sometimes even higher because I tried to keep the shelf price the same at all the stores. So they would pay a higher price and then buy more volume and run it at the same price as other stores that bought lower volume, um, but just jacked up the price a lot more. So kind of my idea with scaling up is just to get to that price point that works for every store. Um, when I say every store, it's pretty much, it's this is an independently owned stores, or we do a little bit of work with some chains like Lucky's and Natural Grocers that are more focused on organic produce. But for example, our like our lettuce mix, most stores retail the five ounce bags at $3.99. So we're able to charge $2.50 for a bag of that lettuce mix and that price works great for them and it looks the same on the shelf to the customer. Whereas before we were some places we were selling them at like three because their margin was a little bit lower and they could put it out on the shelf. But it was always kind of limiting in volume and I was just picking who we could sell to. So I just really wanted to get to the point where with every produce manager that's on board, try and just, at least for the summer season when we have all this stuff, kind of get rid of the California organic products on the shelf and just be at a price point that it works for them and there's not really any incentive for them to buy in other stuff when we have it locally. Has that worked? Have you been able to edge out the California product in some of those marketplaces? Yeah. Um, some of our, especially our co-op here, it's really amazing. I just talked to um, Steve and Matt, the managers there this winter, and specifically said that. I was like, if I can lower my price to a certain point, would you guys consider just exclusively carrying local organic for the, your salad mixes? And so we started with the five ounce bags and just like right out the gate, once we had it in the end of May, early June, and they went for it and it worked and people were really happy. And then partway through the season, actually started doing 10 ounce bags as well. So they were still bringing in the 10 ounce clamshells. And so we replaced those too. And they 
did buy in some from other farms as well, but they were running 100% local and organic all summer for their greens, which is awesome. Another thing we did in our expansion this year is started marketing outside of Bozeman. Just to kind of give some perspective, Bozeman's pretty small town, 40,000 people or so in, in the valley, kind of people that commute and work in Bozeman. There's about 100,000, really not a big population. And so we've started selling and to some of the other small towns kind of in a two-hour radius around us. And we're able to partner with a distributor who is great summit distribution. And uh, we have a deal where we just pay them a percentage of invoice and they do the delivering. We still do all of the sales because all we needed was distribution. We didn't need another middleman marking up before going to the grocery store because that price point really just doesn't work. You're not outsourcing the sales of the product. You're just outsourcing the delivery of the product. Exactly. Because um, we have worked with another distributor, but they their model, they only will buy it and resell it. And they try to do some work with grocery stores. It, it works fine with restaurants, but when you're a middleman selling to another middleman that's a grocery store, unless we dropped our prices like crazy, it just doesn't really pencil out to have something on the shelf that the customer can buy. And that could allow that distributor to actually buy volume. And so I saw that I could do the volume if we had the distribution. And so we're in all the independently owned grocery stores in these smaller towns. And that was the other thing with having the price point right is before approaching a store with a, a higher price point, the store really had to be totally bought in and like willing to run maybe a lower margin because it's local. And so we kind of tried to flip that and just make it as easy as possible for the stores that the price works out. And it's, as soon as they get it, they're pretty much sold. We also kind of our technique is we just, when we have products, we send full case cases of samples for free. And when people are on the fence, it's like, just put it out and see what happens. And we'll keep sending you free samples until you decide you want to do it or not. And generally they put it out and people buy it. And once they've bought it once and they'll buy it again, because there really is no comparison as far as the quality and flavor of our products versus what's getting shipped in here. I think especially in a place like Bozeman, where you guys, I mean, like you said, Montana is a lot of small cities and it's not like you guys are prime produce distribution territory. It's not like you guys are Seattle, where there's tons of high quality produce available from the conventional market exactly. all the time. You guys are really in a, mm -hmm. in a spot where there's not deliveries rolling into every store every day. Exactly. It's actually been really interesting. Some of the stores that were our best customers this year are in tiny towns. There's a town, Ennis, about an hour south of us. And I don't even know the population, maybe a thousand people. Um, got a decent amount of tourism with fly fishing and stuff, but they totally bought in and kind of just, if we had it, they bought it and didn't buy it off of the truck just because it was so much higher quality and the price point worked for them. And so I think especially those kind of really far out there towns like Bozeman, I think you can get good stuff, but when you're the last stop tiny town, you're going to be kind of getting the dregs of the produce, I think. So that was a pretty surprising thing. I didn't really expect. I thought they would buy some, but surprising some of these smaller stores that we're doing bigger sales than some of the stores that really promoted themselves as being all about local. And I would imagine that in a town like Ennis with that, you talked about it being a tourist town, you know, tourists want that Montana grown experience, right? They're, that's, mm -hmm. that's part of the reason why you go there. Totally. 
So tell me a little bit more about how that distribution partnership worked. You said you made an arrangement with the company. Is this is this a distribution company that does this for a lot of other farms, or is this something where you were able to get a unique partnership? It's interesting. We actually started at the same in the same year. And just in general, Bozeman's a really cool community. There's a lot of it's super entrepreneurial. And so I get a partner with a lot of people that have kind of been doing it around the same amount of time as I have. They're actually a steak, seafood, and meat distributor around Bozeman. So that's kind of their bread and butter. And they, they've dabbled in doing produce and actually buying it and selling it and realized that there's a lot better ways to lose money. And so I kind of started talking with them about my need for distribution and seeing if we could work out a deal. And it's a benefit for them because they're providing the meat and they provide pretty much everything a chef could need. And they will order in produce from other larger places uh, when it's not around locally, but kind of works out well. We had a bunch of accounts they didn't have, and so they could also offer their meat there. But yeah, it kind of allows them to have something else to offer. And as a distribution company, like they want their trucks to be full. And since we scaled up this year, we were sending them like pallets and pallets of stuff every day. And they're delivering pretty, it's pretty crazy the switch from what we were doing before to this year, like delivering to all these different towns that have different delivery days. So we had stuff, basically Summit would, they would actually come to the farm because they're only a few miles down the road, which is great, and pick up at on every afternoon for the deliveries that needed to go to towns the next day. So it really streamlined things for us. We still do our own Bozeman deliveries just because we're right on the edge of town. And so at most, our delivery route takes like two, two and a half hours when we're in full production. This time of year, it doesn't really take any time at all. They've done a little bit with other farms, but we kind of we were really looking to jump up big time. And originally I was trying to figure out how to get another truck or two and just have somebody going out every day and doing this distribution. And there have been hiccups, like figuring it out, but overall it's been so nice. Like that's what they do. They're a distribution company and they're figuring out how to do that well. And so we don't have to think about it. We just have to give them the produce and pack it on pallets in a way that they can work with it. And yeah, it works really well. And how nice that you didn't have to go out and make those investments in another truck or in hiring a full-time driver and getting into that business that you don't really know that well. Exactly. I never want to, <laughs> never want to know it that well. It's complicated enough doing everything else we're doing. So the scaling up process that you've gone through, well, process might even be a little bit of an exaggeration. You guys really went from, you know, four acres, you said, to to 14 in vegetables this yep. year. That's a huge leap, not just in terms of, I mean, I think that in some ways going from four to 14 is a lot bigger and a lot different than going from, say, 14 to, to 42, because, and you know, at four acres, you're farming one way, you know, and there's a certain amount yep. of mechanization that you can do. But it, at 14, you really get to a point where you can't be pushing one row cedars up and down the row anymore. Can you tell no. us a little bit about how that that dramatic expansion worked? What sorts of investments you guys had to make and the changes that were involved in that? It felt like starting a new business. It 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 is night and day. Nothing we were doing before we're doing now. It's so kind of a crazy thing to do. But um, last year, I did a ton of research and lined up financing 
for equipment and to purchase the land. Another big reason we did this expansion is those first three years were on leased land and didn't have any permanent buildings. So our pack shed in the summertime was a three-bay pole barn that we had built. We had no concrete. And so we were in, I mean, 300 grand isn't a ton of sales, but for like our infrastructure, like we were in the stone ages and putting out a pretty decent amount of volume. So I really wanted a pack shed in kind of that infrastructure. And especially we do a lot of year round sales and to make that easier, um, instead of having to wash all of our produce in October outside that we're storing, we can now just wash it through the winter, have this new pack shed. But so anyways, we, uh, I lined up the financing to get equipment and to buy the land, which was a whole insane process in itself. And basic, I really took on a lot of debt because I just wanted to do that jump. I didn't want to kind of get some of it. I just wanted to go to the scale so that I knew it'd be crazy, but so we can have this base. And then, like you said, like in the future, it won't be a big deal to add however many acres because we have the equipment we need. So I basically, I'm not going to even be able to remember all of them, but we purchased so much equipment this year. This spring was ridiculous. Like every day, another semi truck showed up with all sorts of stuff on it. Um, but have a, I got a 70 horse Kubota for kind of our primary tillage and for pulling the water wheel transplanter, which was another new purchase. I got an immense spader. I had had a smaller Chelly spader before. Uh, the, one of the cooler things I got is a Farigo stone barrier. It's basically a rototiller um, bed former all in one pass. And for the three years prior, I've been doing pretty rough bed prep and just using uh, the Chelly. And it was one of those things I could make it, make a nice bed with it. Um, but it's not something that you can just put somebody on and have them do it right. Whereas the Frigo, you set it down and go and you have just the most beautiful, perfect bed ever. So I really, a big part of the goal of this was also to just really standardize things and kind of make it so that it's easier to plug people in and there isn't quite as much kind of, it has to be the, the operator really knowing exactly what they're doing to make it work and to kind of reduce that that uh, factor there. Um, so I got the Frigo, I got a, a Sutton Junior 12-row cedar. We do a lot of greens production. That's kind of the core of our business and our main cash flow crop is baby greens. Um, so that cedar was great before uh, we were doing I had my seeding last year. I ganged together two earthways 16 inches apart and just do four passes, kind of like staggering each one. So you end up with eight rows in a bed. So it's great now. I can go and seed a half acre of greens in an hour and a half. And and it's perfect. It's not variable like it is with the Earthway. Got a, a Kubota 245 cultivating tractor. Bought a carrot harvester from a farm that had been doing carrots for the past few years. They're part of a bigger conventional farm, um, but had a small corner of the farm they were doing inorganic uh, production and pretty much just onions and storage carrots and I was planning on buying a new carrot harvester because that's a big part of what we do and what I wanted to expand as our winter storage and so I 
was able to, they were kind of phasing out and they actually called me up because they knew that what I was planning on doing and offered it to me. And so spent $3,000 on a used care harvester instead of 30 grand on a, a new one. So that was a pretty sweet deal. Um, so that's kind of the field stuff that we got. Um, on the new property, there was an existing pole barn building that about 50 by 36 of it was just dirt floor, no insulation in the walls. And starting in February, when I closed on the property, um, got some contractors to come in and turn that into our pack shed. So concrete floors, put radiant floor heating in there for heat, insulated the walls, put up roofing metal so we can wash the walls down if we need to, put a drain in there. And then next to that part of the building, the, the previous owners, uh, the guy was a pretty skilled woodworker and he had his woodworking shop. That one is 30 by uh, 24 roughly with a weird little alcove on it. And that already had concrete. So I turned that entire room into our new walk-in cooler and it's about 12 feet tall. So it's really great space. You can fit a lot of stuff in there. Um, and that's connected to our pack shed with a garage door that we put in. And then beyond that, there's a an existing three-bay garage and loft office above that. It's pretty dreamy, like going from, we were just in the stone ages and just making it work pretty uncomfortable. To, so I, I knew what I wanted and decided to take that risk and take the debt to just get there. Um, so now we have a really awesome setup. I just recently bought a pallet stacker, basically an electric walk-behind um, little forklift thing that allows you to stack pallets. We can go four high in our cooler. So we're really able to maximize that vertical space and just makes material handling a lot easier having that to move stuff around. And obviously it's it's relatively early on in your expansion. You've, you took on all this debt a year ago to scale up. Are you still feeling good about that decision? Um, so I'm totally exhausted and burnt out right now. Um, but overall, I am I'm glad I did it. And we aren't for next year. This year was just the craziness. Like I said, it was like starting the farm over again from scratch, which the first year was insane. And it is for everybody. Um, but I'm glad I did it because now we are at that base. And next year, we just get to use all of this equipment that we figured out this year and we get to use all of the systems we put into place this year. And so I'm not planning on doing any expansion next year. And we're just really going to be fine tuning, making everything work. Because as you can imagine, with doing that much growth in one season, there's a lot of growing pains. And that was actually coupled. This was like the worst weather year we've that I've ever seen. And I've been in Bozeman for eight years. Um, and even talking to the older farmers, it's just really extreme. And so it's unfortunately for us, uh, uh, chose the wrong year to, to put it all out there and go for it. So it was definitely a challenging year. We had April, it rained constantly. We had literally like three days from the beginning of April, well into May that were dry enough to cultivate it at all to do any tillage. And then May it snowed every week, June, we had four damaging hailstorms in a month, which in my previous three years, we'd had like 
I think three total hailstorms period. And in one month we had four and we actually had about that many throughout the course of the season. So it was just really, really hard to kind of deal with that, especially in June, right? When that was right when all of our stuff starts coming in. And so got wiped out by one hailstorm, right? As stuff starts to bounce out of it, we get hit by another one. And it was kind of, kind of unbelievable. And it was something I told my lenders and my family. I'm like, we can handle lots of extreme weather events, but the one thing that could really screw us is just perfectly timed storms that just did exactly what I just said and kind of continuously hit you and keep knocking you down. And so that happened this year. So that was fun. And then that was followed by the driest July and August ever on record and in the in the 90s every day. And painting kind of a doom and gloom story here, but that was followed by a September that turned into winter um, in the middle of the month. And September is usually a great growing month for all of our fall crops. And this year it just started dumping snow mid-September and got really cold. So we basically lost three weeks of growing weather at that point. So had quite a few crops that, um, like a lot of our brassica roots, like watermelon radishes and turnips, never sized up because um, they just lost that growing window. So it's kind of a, a rough year. And so with all of that, I'm obviously tired, but it makes anything going forward seem kind of easy because we've got the growing pains out of the way. And so even if next year is just as extreme of a weather year, all we're going to be dealing with is the weather. We won't have to build all of our systems from scratch and be doing everything totally differently. And I, I feel like I say this every year. I'm like, well, I'm, all these bad things happen. I'm kind of glad it happened because now I know what can happen. I say that about this year, um, and we're, I'm going to be changing our production a decent amount kind of based on the extremes we saw this year and doing a few different things, just even if it does happen again, that we can have more of our crops make it through despite what the weather can throw at us. And a lot of that has to do with kind of planting dates and just having stuff done earlier in the fall. That's always kind of a risk here um, in October. It can It can get real cold, real fast. It's not not quite as nice as some of the normal veggie growing regions in the country. So let me ask a really blunt and and nosy question. Were you able to make your payments this year despite all of the trouble that you ran into? Um, So I actually ended up having to have some family bail me out and I they, they offered to do it. I ended up at a point where I was looking into a community financing model we like with June, like we were all the way out there. And then June is the first month when you actually start making money here. And we just got annihilated week after week by storms. So this is the first year we've lost money as far as a profit and loss statement goes. And so I am fortunate when I was telling my family about doing the community financing, there's that with all of the risk, part of what allows me to do it is there's a really great community here in Bozeman. It's kind of amazing. I've had so many people who want to invest in the farm and want to help. So I was kind of like, all right, let's let's do it. I don't want to go out of business because of one bad weather year, right when we're jumping to this point where we're going to be able to serve the community that much better and offer that much more food. And so I actually started going down that path and had a lot of people interested and 
would have made that work out. And then my grandma had talked to my dad and he told her like kind of all the stuff I was going through. And she offered to give me my inheritance early to cover the debt payments. So it's money that she would have given me, but she's like, you need the money now. You don't need it when you're in your 50s. And so I was able to do it that way. That was the first time that I've, I had had anyone give me money for for the farm. The last three years, everything paid for was profitable every year. But one realization kind of came to this year is just looking at other businesses and how they grow. Farming and how farmers generally do it is kind of crazy. We expect to be profitable all the time. And you look at most businesses, they get a huge influx of capital and they're just losing their asses for five years straight before they turn a profit at all. So that's kind of where I was going with the community financing model as well, kind of looking at like, how do we get farms to grow and to be able to figure things out and set up good systems without spending so much of their time just on that month to month, like, are we going to be able to pay the bills? And so it's in a lot of ways, I feel financing is something that really needs to get figured out and to help the farming community in general to allow us to grow up and not kind of have the mentality that I think so many of us have that we have to just make it work on our own and that debt is bad and kind of some of those things. And you've talked about it a lot on your show that obviously there's different ways and it depends on your risk. And so I took that risk and ended up having to ask for help. But as far as like from an operations standpoint, we are profitable. I just took on a huge debt load. And for this first, this was the critical year and it happened to be the worst weather year. So when you say from an operations standpoint, what you mean is that your your income, your your income from production is in excess of your expenses to do that production, but you had some negative cash flow because you didn't have enough funds to to pay the, to do the debt service. Exactly. So basically in the last year I've raised a million dollars of debt and so this year's payment is huge. And so that's kind of what I was talking about with how I think we really need to look at financing a little bit differently and kind of partnering with flexible people that really believe in this movement and kind of just going more the, not like the Silicon Valley way, but kind of like just raise all of the capital you need right away and kind of have some flexibility on that just to get to the point where you really can just have things figured out and be profitable on a larger scale. I think we kind of hamstring ourselves sometimes by trying to do it gradually or just like making it pay for itself all the time out of the gate. Because there's not really very many businesses that that do that, that are, I think a lot of farms are, and I was the first three years, you're just truly profitable every year. And I think it's, if we just look at what other businesses do, that's not really necessarily realistic in order to grow to a larger scale. I think that so often in our community, and I think there's a lot to be said for that, there's a real focus right now on kind of small scale, intensive, high profitability per acre production that tends to be very low capital input. You know, you're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, it's it's a BCS, it's a cool bot unit in a, in a small walk-in cooler, it's a tiny packing shed, and it's an acre and a half of ground, you know? And, and I think that, and that's awesome. And I love, I love that model. I love what that's done for our community. I think what you're talking about, this idea of, of, 
making local foods really accessible to a wide number of people, you know, in other words, getting it into the grocery store does require a different scale of production. And yeah. I do think that what you're talking about really does apply to that, that we need, you know, we have to think about what does what does a capitalization model look like for a farm that wants to get up to a 10 acre, 20 acre, 40 acre scale where you are able to get things in a packing shed that meets the regulatory standards so that you can get it into the grocery stores and all of those other details kind of have to all come together and that you can do the volume every week to where a grocery store can afford to invest and say, yes, we're going to have your stuff on the shelf and we're ditching the California stuff. Because that's really when we start to make an impact with local foods. Exactly. And that's what like people kind of think I'm crazy sometimes for maybe a lot of the time for kind of how I go about things, but that's what really motivates me is like actual visible change. And so this year, despite all of the challenges, it was really cool. Just, I mean, we were all over the place and we moved so much food. It was awesome. And so that's what motivates me. And it's kind of the, the money is what the way you have to do it. And that's why you have to treat it as a business. But at the end of the day, money's just money. And I think once you get on a bigger scale, you can kind of look at what your mission is and what you're trying to accomplish and then make the money work around that instead of just trying to figure out a way to make enough money. And obviously on the one and a half acre scale, you have to just make enough to pay yourself. But once you expand, you get to kind of when you when you are grossing a lot more and you have some flexibility and you have managers. I think you can just affect change faster. I think they're both equally important and it just depends on what your risk tolerance is. I think the acre and a half scale is great if you have a low risk tolerance and you like to have total control of everything yourself. Because once you get beyond that, even when you're at like the four acre scale, to do a really good job, you need other people involved. And once you're at the scale that we jumped to this year, you get to have lots of people involved and can really hire awesome people to run entire parts of the business and kind of let them do their full capacity and go after it. And so that's another thing that's exciting to me. And another reason I wanted to expand is just to have more opportunities for more people to get involved in this. So kind of what worries me about a lot of the models I've seen is it's basically a farmer or a farmer couple and they're working really hard and they have a crew of underpaid interns working really hard. And then those interns maybe will come back for a season or two. But then the only way those interns can ever really make a living is if they go and start their own farm and do the exact same thing. So I'm trying to provide kind of more of a, an actual business that has room for advancement and has room for growth within it. I mean, it's hard to start a farm and I don't think it's realistic if we really want to change the food system for everyone to go and start their small farm, whatever scale it is. I think we need to get a little bit more in that middle ground of being a, a business that is viable and has room for growth rather than kind of just being at that set point where basically you work there until you can't afford to work there and you go start your own place. So one more question about, about kind of the growth and scaling up and capitalization is where did you get the financing? You said a million dollars in financing that you brought on this year. Where did you go for that? 
so part of it was through the FSA and that was for the equipment loan, which I just took the full amount of their $250,000 equipment loan for the land purchase. That was a combination of FSA again and Northwest Farm Credit Service. And it's really interesting. I actually last, this is last December, things were still totally up in the air on whether I'd be able to get the financing to purchase the property and make all this happen. And I had been working with a a new company in Bozeman and we were working on a a community financing crowdfunding model. Crowdfunding is pretty new and there's a lot of unknowns about the kind of the legal way to do it. And so I worked with these guys to kind of set up a flexible financing model that would work with actual cash flow of a farm business. And so basically you raise the whole amount through community investors and with the crowdfunding, a couple of different ways you can do it. But basically you can just from people who believe in what you're doing, they invest in you instead of investing in Wall Street and not really knowing what what's going on. So investing locally. But the, what we worked on and got it developed is a model where the payments are based on your actual uh, gross sales each month or quarter is what we actually ended up doing so that if you do have a year like this year where everything that can go wrong otherwise does, your payments are lower. And basically the way we had it set up, it would be like a 10-year payment plan with the idea that you'd make smaller payments the first couple of years as you're getting everything going. And then once you're established, you make bigger payments and kind of basing it off of how the farm is actually doing. So I spent a lot of time and actually a lot of legal money setting this up because I would have been the first um, investment that this company had actually ever done. They were a new company too. So we got it set up, but it was, since it was a new thing, it was kind of taking longer than we expected to raise the money. I was getting a little antsy because I had a hard closing date of February 1st on the property. So I reached out to my FSA loan officer who had gotten the equipment loan from and reached out to the young um, kind of the beginning farmer loan program through Northwest Farm Credit Service. And uh, two amazing women at both of those, Abby Cook is from FSA and Amy Roberts from Northwest Farm Credit Service, but worked with them and they really believed in what I was doing. And from Abby at the FSA, she totally vouched for me because I've had my micro loans from them as well and have made my payments. They've seen the business grow. Um, so they really went out on a limb and convinced their superiors um, to try something different. So out here, like what, what we're doing is totally weird. It's all green production or livestock production here, vegetable production uh, lending agencies just have no clue what we're doing. And so it doesn't really fit their models. Um, but I went to them and said the private deal was taking longer and wasn't sure if it was going to work out. And it was totally the opposite of what I thought. I went the private way because I thought it would be faster. But these two pretty large bureaucracies, they were able to do a really fast turnaround and made it happen. And so ended up taking that because we were able to just close on the property. And of course, by the time we closed and did it, 
through the private deal. We had kept it going just to see what would happen. Ended up raising almost all the money. And so that was kind of what I was talking about before where I knew the community support was there. I think we had we were up to like $700,000 raised through community investment. So in a way, basically raised the money twice, um, which I wouldn't recommend. That's pretty exhausting trying to run two different <laughs> financing models. But I needed to know, since, since with a private deal, it was new, like there's no guarantee. Whereas with going through the FSA and Northwest Farm Credit, like there's established protocols. It's like a month turnaround for an answer once you get your stuff in. Whereas with a private deal, it's like, well, we either raise the money or we don't. Something cool that did come from that private deal, though, is I blew a lot of legal money getting it all set up and it didn't work out. But um, another farm in the Valley just this fall purchased a neighboring property and went through that and used that model that we had set up. So somebody got to use it, which is cool. That's really cool. With that, we're going to stop here, take a break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Dylan Strike from Strike Farms in Bozeman, Montana. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment that a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, the flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors and has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time when I was using them thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Perennial support is also provided by Vermont Compost Company. Vermont Compost Potting Soils promise you the presence of all of the complex and humus-bound and glomalin-bound biota and proteins and nutrients, and they promise there will be no genetic material viable to compete or confuse your efforts. And that, of course, is this crazy unnatural condition, but of course, so is putting things in pots. Vermont Compost uses art and science to imitate nature and support plants within this unnatural condition, and that's why Vermont Compost provides an ideal medium to grow high-quality transplants. And while it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs September 21st through December 21st, taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com. All right, and we're back with Dylan Strike at Strike Farms in Bozeman, Montana, Dylan, you and I were talking about some of the, the, before the break, we were talking about some of the financial challenges in the scaling up process and, and the bad luck that you had with the weather. What else did you learn in the process of going from four to 14 acres of vegetables? So the, one of the biggest challenges was employee management. And basically my job or one of my many jobs this year is kind of managing managers and employees and kind of getting my managers to a point where they could manage. And it was especially challenging just going from, it's not like we gradually did it and had a lot of people 
already on from the year before. So pretty small crew before. And so I was having to bring on a lot of new people and get them into pretty or very, um, uh, what's the word, uh, roles with a lot of responsibility. Um, cause when, when you're doing what we were doing, um, as far as sales and just everything going on, you, you can't do it all. And so you really have to get systems set up so that other people can run it and you don't need to be there all the time. Um, one thing I learned about myself this year and about other people is that my, my learning style and ability to deal with stress. Um, obviously I, I do well under pressure and I've just been doing it for so long. I mean, really since I started managing that other farm five years ago, it's been nonstop new constantly. I never have like, and no business owner does like there's no roadmap of what you're supposed to do or like what your job is. And you have to figure everything out as you go. And I, even though it is stressful, like that's how I thrive is I take on a big challenge and I kind of need that pressure in order to, to do it. Um, kind of the classic kind of procrastination thing for some people in order to like get their paper written or whatever. And I kind of do that with, I just take on so much that I am totally challenged. Um, and I can perform under that pressure and make it work because it, the way that I've done it, it, it has to work. And that's kind of, I, I think I'm just stubborn and I like refuse to fail or give up. And so even though it's not the most, especially this year, it wasn't the most balanced thing, but I knew I'm, I wasn't going to let it fail. Um, and that I would figure it out, but realized that in the process of doing this expansion, I kind of, in my brain, I didn't consciously think about it, but kind of just thought that other people wanted that challenge of like figuring stuff out and making it work. Turns out, which is pretty obvious to everyone else, I'm sure <laughs> most people aren't comfortable with that and learn much better when it's a low pressure situation and can do a better job. And so I, Kind of with that, a lot of the people I have who are the most amazing workers and just totally dedicated, um, what they like to do is work and get stuff done. And when you're a manager, you don't get to do that. Your job, you never get to just finish a task. Your job is to just make sure that everyone else can be working at full capacity all the time. So something I really realized is that the in hiring and it's really hard to like know if somebody's going to be a good manager, but hiring someone who can manage versus somebody who's a really good farmer is a really important thing to do. And so this year was, there are a lot of challenges with that. Um, just having people having to take on roles with a lot of responsibility and like we were all over our heads and everybody toughed it out and we made it happen. Um, but it's just something really important that I realize is how critical it is to make sure your job description is totally clear and you really do hire someone who has all the qualifications. Cause it's really easy to like, you've got the list on your job description and what the qualifications are. They're like, Oh, but you could figure it out. And like, you're great 
at all this stuff and you know so much, but if somebody doesn't have management experience to manage 20 employees, then that means they're in a situation where they have to learn how to do that. And like I said before, most people don't like that and it's not comfortable. So going forward, we're actually in the hiring and interviewing process right now for next year, which feels really good. Another thing that compounded it this season is didn't wrap up the financing and everything until February and then had to get all the infrastructure built and everything at the new property. So we were kind of behind the ball on hiring and weren't able to really start until like end of February into March. And at that point, a lot of the, even for the crew, a lot of people, the people that actually had experience had already taken jobs elsewhere. And so <laughs> to top off, um, not having people who had experience managing at that scale, most of our crew and literally most had never worked on a farm before. So ended up hiring locally and amazing people, hard workers, but it, this was a hard year to have to teach people from scratch, like crop ID. I tell somebody like, go and uh, scuffle the, the edges of the plastic on the pepper beds south of the summer squash. They're like, what does summer squash look like? What is that? Right. And so it was just a whole other, so that took a lot more training and labor than I'm hoping for next year, since we are able to interview people right now and kind of start at that level with people that do have a few years of farm experience under their belt, will eliminate that entire issue. The one benefit of having that many inexperienced people, and this is just taking the silver lining from everything, so it was definitely super challenging, but it really made me realize how much you can do to really clarify things so that somebody who doesn't know can still get something done. So one thing we did partway through the season from a suggestion from the guy from that story about like, what does the summer squash look like? So it could be really great if we could just have um, bed numbers on every single bed. So I was like, great. And had him go buy some flagging and write the bed number and stick it at the end of every single bed. And so stuff like that kind of dummy proofs it where like this is the bed and it's not like telling somebody to go to the third lettuce succession. It's just the bed number and kind of eliminating that possibility for somebody to misunderstand something. I think that those sorts of communication tools are, are so important. And it's so great that you listen to that employee about that suggestion. Cause I think, I think oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes an employee who's, who's really interested and engaged in the operation, but finds something frustrating, they're going to be the people that mm -hmm. come up with those kinds of solutions. Can we please have a number on every bed? And it seems like such a simple thing. Yeah, but it yeah totally changed the game and made it way easier. And yeah, one thing I will say about this year is it really was a total team effort, despite it being all of us being in over our heads. It was everybody was in it. And like we were talking about before the show, like the ideal versus the real. Ideally, we just have all these managers that are excellent managers and crew that's already experienced. But it was pretty cool just everyone coming together and making it happen. And we worked lots of long days. It was really hard work. And it couldn't have happened without the dedication from the entire crew and 
my managers have got a couple of people that just really stepped up and went above and beyond. And it was definitely a team effort, which is huge for me because I don't have a partner in the business. And so it really is, it is a team. And especially with my managers, it's as much as I can, it's more a discussion on like, what can we do? And like with that, that employee story, a lot of the best ideas were just from my managers. I'm like, what can we do? What do you think? And we implemented it and tried it. And had a, we had a really tight knit crew this year, which was great to see, like, despite how challenging everyone, everything was, the crew just really clicked. And I never really seen it before, especially for such a large crew. Everybody would hang out after work and be the end of a 10 or 11 hour day. And everyone would hang out and drink a beer at the farm. So I think that's really, at the end of the day, no matter how challenging something is, is just keeping that team mentality and like knowing that even if somebody maybe frustrates you because they messed up and made something more challenging, that we're all in it together. It's not like a me versus you kind of thing. So that's kind of, I think, what allowed us to make it through such a crazy season is just having such a great group of people and kind of that team and friendship mentality. And of course, when you're scaling up, it's, you know, I mean, we talked about the machinery, we talked about the people, it's, I mean, but it's also about kind of the, the business systems, the, the behind the scenes stuff. What else did you put in place as part of the, the scaling up process, making this decision to go from four to 14 acres? Yeah, so there's a few different things we did. There's actually four I'd like to touch on, and I'll just list off what they are and we can go into each one. But one huge thing on our wholesale side is we started using Farmers Web software, which is amazing. And I'll talk more about that. Uh, we use Member Assembler software for a CSA program, which we hadn't done that before. Um, but this year, we were up to 250 members. And so it was great to have that. Uh, the third thing is uh, worked with a local marketing firm through the winter and basically kind of rebranded and redid our website. Um, and that has been really helpful and just having a really professional look and to those people that aren't really familiar with the local food movement, we kind of just look like a legitimate business, which we are now, but it kind of feels weird. It's like we're a farm, but to the outside eye, people kind of view us different than just the farm down the road. And then the fourth thing is I hired a friend of mine who is an event planner and also does business consulting. And she's been helping um, with kind of systematizing and really formalizing a lot of things as far as the structure of the business and um, kind of helping with that employee management. So we wrote employee an employee manual and we're writing manuals for each position. And we have those mostly roughed out now after this season. Um, and just instituting all sorts of, just really helping with a lot of the admin side of stuff, which has been huge. It can be great to have somebody kind of coaching you through that process. I think sometimes those, I mean, things like the employee manuals and the and the job descriptions and the how tos, those get those can be hard to make the time to actually do the writing for those yourself. I think it's great that you brought somebody in to really to help you make those, bring your ideas and get them out on paper with that stuff. Yeah, totally. And I've been talking about it since year one, but it, like you said, it's one of those things like, when are you actually going to have that much time to, to get it all written down? And so it's been huge having Alicia. She, 
she kind of, and she's also super organized and I'm definitely the idea person and I'll just take on more and just figure out a way to handle it. Um, it's been really great working with her and kind of in a partnership way to, and she's great on these different things on, she doesn't need much direction. It's like, we need this and she just makes it happen. So it's awesome having someone like that who is a lot like me in that way that you don't need that extra clarity. You just need the end goal and you'll figure it out. So that's been a huge thing is having someone like her. Um, and actually I just want to mention my, another one of my managers I hired at the end of the summer is uh, Stephanie Archer. And I've trained her to be a CSA manager and sales manager and um, had another great CSA manager who wrapped up in October, Alexis. Um, uh, but Steph took over for her and um, took over sales for me because I was doing all of the sales this summer. But it's been great having Stephanie take it over because it's kind of like I was making it happen and managing it with everything else. But to just give it to someone else and see them just take it so much further and more awesome than I even thought it could be um, is really cool. Kind of a tangent, but just really highlighting like having those right people that do understand management and can make things happen is, is the best thing you can do, I think, um, to really make things work. So, and, and I, I should mention here, Farmers Web is a current sponsor of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and, and the folks at Member Assembler have been past sponsors of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. But you said you brought both those tools into the farm this year. Can you tell us a little bit about what those tools do and then, and how you've made those work for you? Yep. So Farmer's Web basically lets you have an online store for your wholesale customers to see what's available in real time. And so you, on the back end, you do your field walk, see what you've got in there, and you kind of punch that in, and you have all your different products set up. So like for us, it's, we have, um, we do 18 count boxes of our baby greens. And so I can type in there, we have this week, we're going to have 40 cases of baby kale available. And so on the customer side, they'll see that, they'll see all the products we have. They'll see there's 40 cases of baby kale and it's just like shopping online. They literally just click that they want one of those, put it in the cart click they want something else, put it in the cart. And so it kind of, it's really in line with what I was talking about before of wanting to really normalize and just make it easier for everybody to um, be involved in local food. And so a lot, having that for our wholesale customers has been pretty huge. But what's cool on our end is like your invoices get created from that. Um, we use it a lot on our food safety side because once all of our orders are together, we can export an Excel file and have every case of everything that we sold kind of you organize it however you want. We usually will break it down by customer and then everything on there. And so in the cooler, uh, my pack shed manager can go and look at the lot number on all the boxes and write that onto that sheet. So we have a sheet every day with all of the lot numbers of every product that went out. So kind of a secondary food safety tracking thing there, but that's 
it's so easy because it's all just done in the software and I just have to export a file and then we can fill it in. Um, so it's great for that. And it really has made onboarding new accounts super easy. Um, this year, like I said, we expanded our distribution area. And so a significant portion of our sales this year, which are going to be in the ballpark of like 500,000, um, are from brand new accounts. And so it's great to be able to, a lot of, I talked to as many places as I could over the winter. Um, but I found that really what gets places going is just once you have it, um, sending them some samples and just getting them set up and they can see the software. Um, and something interesting, a few in that ideal world, all of our accounts would just order online like that. Right. It it seems so easy, but a lot of what we do is grocery store sales and most of our produce managers still prefer to just get a phone call. Um, and that works fine for us. Stephanie now sales manager, she'll make the calls and as she gets orders in, she can just do what they would do on their end and just, there's a case of this going there and on our real time inventory, that number drops down. So if somebody else was ordering online, it would be real and we don't double sell anything. Um, so that's been a, a big part of it is just having one template to kind of put everything in one centralized place where everything's happening before we had multiple different spreadsheets and, um, yeah, I really like, really like the farmer's web program and it has just allowed this growth uh, on the sales side. The sales side is actually where we really kicked ass this year. So it's nice to have <laughs> one spot that went really well. It's like everything we had, we sold. And so it was just really when we had some of those crop losses from weather that hurt us, but we were able to, and businesses were that we worked with were impressed and really liked how professional and simple it was. Um, which again is goes right in line with our mission because kind of a lot of the places that had been purchasing local before are kind of the ones that went that extra step and like the farmers, the way they invoiced or whatever it was is different than everybody else. And the store just made it work. And Farmers Web really allows it to be a professional, simple thing for the customer. It fits in with the the other workflows that Exactly. Well, and and I think that's kind of the same thing with something like the CSA member assembler too. It it it's the way that people work these days. And yep. you've got a an online interface that looks like an online interface is supposed to look. Exactly. Yeah, and that's just for the management, um, having so we have CSA drops in a bunch of the cities that we're selling wholesale as well. Um, so we've got, gosh, I don't even remember how many we have right now. I think we're at like 10 or 11 different drop sites. And so having that software is really nice for keeping all of that organized. And we've just got a, a printout sheet for the back shed that this many boxes need to be on that pallet, this many on that one going out this day. And then you can also set up automatic reminders in there for the CSA members. And so that's pretty great that it helps when people in their busy lives to just get a little reminder like, oh, yeah, I have to pick up the CSA today. And then tracking financials, that all just goes in there and people can 
pay with their credit card through that site. And we, we, um, trying to think what the mark, the marketing firm calls it. It's like skinning a site, but basically kind of integrated it into our own website to kind of make it look the same. Cause it is a little confusing for people. If you click on something and then all of a sudden you're at a different site. So the web people that I work with did quite a bit of work to, that's different than how a lot of the sites are set up with members and just to make sure that it looks like the same site when you're there as far as the backgrounds and buttons and everything. Awesome. I think that's, I, and I think those kinds of details are really important. And again, a nice thing that you've, that I think your scale lets you do is to outsource mm-hmm. some of that work, right? I mean, if you're, yep. if you're only grossing 50000 or $100,000 a year, it's hard to hire somebody to, to skin a web service for you. Whereas now suddenly you can yep. get somebody that can do it in half the time and, and it doesn't require any of your creative energy to make that happen. And you can put it in mm-hmm. back into managing the farm. Exactly. Yeah. And that just kind of in general this year, so invested in all its infrastructure and equipment. Um, but I, I really view the, that marketing work as a long-term investment. And so, and I wouldn't have done everything I've done if I wasn't in it for the long haul. And so even though we lost money this year, I'm not too worried about it because I'm not, it's not a right now thing. Like this is setting us up for the next 10 years, having all these things in place and we can work from those. Um, So it just makes everything else easier when you have those kind of automated systems that just work and you don't have to think about it. And on our uh, marketing side, working with that firm, it's been really great um, as far as uh, whenever we need new labels, if we're doing a new product for a store um, or for CSA advertising, it obviously costs more per hour maybe than doing it yourself, but it takes so many fewer hours and everything looks, it, it all fits in our brand. And working with a company that that's what they do is awesome. I really, over the last couple of years, like my first year, I just did everything. And I've really been finding a lot of joy in hiring people who are good at what they do to do things instead of pretending that I'm a contractor or an electrician and wasting a ton of my time. Um, I love paying people their high hourly rate to do a really good job. (laughs) Yeah. And especially this spring, I, for the first time ever cut, so we built two new hoop houses this spring and I just contracted those out to a builder and it was the most amazing feeling just seeing a hoop house go up without having to spend a million hours just around everything else that we're doing. So that's, that's one investment I think is worth it. Even if you are on a smaller scale for some of those building things, just contract somebody to do it and throw it up in a week instead of, and maybe some for other farms. I know for us, it always ends up being like a month long project that if you had a dedicated few days to do it, you could just, busted out. But realistically, when when you're in production and everything is going on, you don't have that time unless you just work after you do everything else. And- when I was worked on a processing ship in Alaska where we were processing fish and, and we worked uh, six hours on, six hours off, six hours on, six hours off, seven days a week. So, you know, kind of a crazy schedule like farming, but then they would they would add in, they called it the kick shift. So every third off shift, you got to work an extra two and a half hours while you should have been sleeping or something. 
I've always mm-hmm. thought I've always thought high tunnels and building high tunnels on farms was always a little bit like the kick shift on the processing shift. You know, it's like there's really not time to do this, but you're just going to do it anyways. But it it's always there, waiting to be done. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and that's something I'm really trying to do is outsource everything that's not actual production and sales, so that we can focus on being good at what our skill set is and not waste all that time doing things that we're really not in any way qualified to do and take us 10 times longer to do than hiring someone to do it. And that aren't the core of a, of a business. I mean, your, your business is production yeah. and sales. We haven't really talked a lot directly about, about your crop production. Tell me a little bit more about your crop rotation and, and the winter storage crops you're doing and the cover crops and how all of that fits together with this with this sales and marketing system that you've got. Yep. Cool. So on that 14 acres, this year we had about five acres purely devoted to storage crops, and three and a half of those were carrots, um, which is pretty incredible uh, to see, considering last year our total production was four acres. So we had a field of carrots the size of our entire farm the year before. Um, so about five acres of storage crops um, and about five acres of baby greens, and those all get double cropped during the season. Um, and so the, the baby greens really are our core through the summer months and then in the winter time as far as sales and in order to have cash flow to pay employees throughout the year. And then in the winter time, in order to keep stuff on the shelves, that's a big reason we do the so much winter storage production is that like this year we harvested over a hundred thousand pounds of carrots. And so we'll be able to keep those in grocery store shelves probably into March. And then at that point we'll have, um, in, in April and May, we do a ton of potted plant production that we have sold retail um, off the farm and at the farmer's markets and have been expanding over the past few years our wholesale sales of those. So we actually sell to all of the garden centers around Bozeman. We have our own UPC plant stakes with what it is and that it's from Strike Farms and it's organic. So that's a, our big cash flow crop in the spring is potted plants out of our greenhouses. So that's kind of the big thing. And then the remaining acres are, we do a, a decent amount of wholesale herbs of cilantro, parsley, and basil, um, and bunched kale and chard, and a little bit on the bunched roots. And then everything else is kind of our CSA mix. So we've got our kind of our core wholesale stuff, and then we do a lot of things specifically just for CSA. And something we're that's new this year is we've actually been partnering with other farms and specifically a growers co-op over in Missoula, Montana, which compared to Bozeman is a super balmy growing climate. (laughs) Still pretty rough, but not quite as extreme as over here. And so there's some crops that we're buying in this winter. Um, They do a really good job with storage onions and shallots and winter squash. And since we expanded our CSA quite a bit, we're buying those in because we don't have enough of our own this year. But next year, we're actually 
completely cutting out um, onions and garlic, which when I tell people the garlic one, they're like, what? Garlic's the best crop. It's so easy. Uh, but for us, it's kind of trying to cut out those crops that are not really the like weekly same thing that we're doing all the time that uh, all of a sudden it's like, oh, we have to get all the garlic in and cure it. And we have to have greenhouse space to do that. And same with the onions, um, especially the onions. We've had a really hard time storing those because it's always a race in the fall. We have such a short season that half the time they're not really ready to come out of the ground and the stems are too thick. They don't store very well. And then there's all these growers in Missoula that do an amazing job growing onions and they store forever. So we're going to be buying in a lot of those from them next year. This whole season, we stopped growing potatoes because there's a fourth generation, I think they're fourth generation, potato farm in the valley that, I can't remember how long ago, quite a while ago, they started doing a few acres in kind of a one of their pivot corners that wasn't really being used and they started doing that in organic. So they're a large conventional potato farm, but they have a, all this acreage in organic. And so we can buy it from them for our CSA and it gives them a consistent outlet. So we're buying in quite a bit of volume. Like this year it'll be over 10,000 pounds of potatoes because we're, we've got our 250 CSA members for so long. And again, goes in line with our mission of just kind of normalizing it and making it more accessible and, Something that I really want to do is like really focus on what we do well and let other farmers focus on what they do well. And we're pretty good at the marketing and sales. And so we can kind of buy in large volumes from some of these places because we can move them because we've got the CSA and have figured that part out. So that's kind of how the cash flow works. And as far as rotation, basically have a six-year rotation. Like I said earlier in the show, we keep a third of our production out for full season cover crop. And a big reason for doing that is that at least on the original property, it had a really low annual weed seed bank and I wanted to keep it that way. So I was pretty terrified of bringing in manure from anywhere and ruining that really fast with millions of pigweed seeds or whatever. So rather than applying manure, I've been using granulated composted turkey manure for our fertilizer and that's we use sustain for that. So do our a lot of our fertility through that and in our drip system, we use fish, um, but for organic matter, decided to just grow it. And in our cover crop years, we can get two full stand cover crops and then still get in a fall, fall seeded winter annual if we want to for the next year. Um, and so that, that also allows us to manage weeds better, just being able to weed an entire field instead of, especially our perennial weeds, to just do some bare following and work on them when we don't have crops growing. Um, let's see. And so basically we'll have a cover crop year and that will be followed by brassicas year after that is root vegetables followed by another cover crop year. And then we follow that with our baby greens. And then the year after that is we just call it the hot crops everything we do on plastic, um, which is all the solanaceous and cucurbits out here. Um, and our cut flowers. I forgot to mention that one. That's a, a decent amount of what we do this year. We had an acre of cut flowers that we were doing through grocery stores and direct to brides and event planners for stuff like that. And so I really tried to piece those together kind of throughout the year because we have a super short growing season here. 
and it's like on average like a 90-day frost-free, which doesn't really mean anything. We can get a hard frost in middle of August, and all our hot crops can be done. But oh, another thing we've done to kind of balance that out is partnered with my friend Patrick Burr, who owns Roots Kitchen and Cannery, and he also started the same year I did, but does processing of local produce. And so we contract with him. We give him our produce and pay him a set amount per jar to process it for us. And then we have that in all of our winter CSA shares and our early summer shares. So we've got a little more diversity and it's really nice having a shelf-stable product um, instead of all the fresh produce that we do. So we've kind of done a bunch of stuff like that to really just my kind of long-term goal is to, and this year we're with as much storage production as we did and with all the processing and having more greenhouses, we're really doing a lot more sales all through the winter. So I'm really trying to balance that out as much as possible because it's hard to make all of your money in three months for the whole year and to allow for employment. Yeah. In a short season climate like Bozeman, I think that would be that would be a huge challenge. And, and especially for what you said, to keep business systems like the employment running for a long enough period of time that maybe you can attract back the same people year after year. Exactly. Awesome. With that, I'd like to turn here to our lightning round. But first, we need to get a word from one more sponsor. This lightning round and the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management. Farmers Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also those that order by phone or by email. Use Farmers Web to generate a product catalog for buyers, allow buyers to view your real-time availability online, and create harvest lists and packing slips for your orders. Farmers Web helps you inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and more while helping you keep track of special pricing and customer information. You can also download detailed financial reports. Farmers Web offers a free account type and a flat monthly fee on paid plans. You can pause, cancel, or switch plan types at any time. Check out a demo video and the Farmers Web Guide to Working with Wholesale Buyers at FarmersWeb.com. Dylan, what's your favorite tool on the farm? My favorite tool is the internet. I love having, I don't know how anyone did anything without having an iPhone and Google. <laughs> so like so many of the issues you run into or like you need to figure something out and there's probably a YouTube video on how to do it or some article about it. Yeah, it's funny. I've listened to your show before and I thought about that one. I'm like, what do I use more than anything? And it's definitely just having the internet at your fingertips and kind of amazed that information that's out there now. And it's really, if you need to know something, you can figure it out. It does strike me sometimes when I think back to the, the dark ages when I started my own farm in 1999 and, and using dial-up and just the, the complete change in information resources and, and even in community that's available. I mean, the things that you can learn now on Instagram or like you said, watching on YouTube yep. or uh, having places to ask questions on Facebook on a daily basis rather than just once a year at a conference. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, actually, yeah, the Instagram thing started originally as kind of a marketing thing, but now I use it almost more as an information sharing thing. Like most, I follow so many farms and pretty amazing how 
I feel like as a community, everybody's really open and likes sharing the cool things they've figured out. And it's, you just scroll through and it's like, oh, wow, that could totally change, change things for us if we tried that. And that's, it takes a second to look at. And like I said, you don't have to go to a conference and find that person. What's your favorite crop to grow? Kind of a toss up. I really like growing greenhouse tomatoes. But I've really been into the, the storage crop and especially carrots, especially after this year, just how extreme everything was. It's really fun growing a crop that is meant to grow here. So we do a lot of stuff that like I was actually just down in Austin and I visited uh, Johnson's Backyard Gardens and saw like what it's like when you can grow year round. And some of the stuff that we do in Bozeman, like they just laugh at because it's so silly how much work we do to like try to grow red peppers, but growing a crop like carrots that just thrives with the, the cool nights and it's frost proof. I mean, we're getting frost and they, the, the soil that we have on three of our properties anyway is more of a clay loam and the carrots just do so well. And even when it's hot, it holds moisture. Fun growing something that, that wants to grow here instead of some of the things that we try so hard and then they get totally hailed out. That's the other thing with the root vegetables. It's nice having stuff that's underground. That's right. kind of our <laughs> crop insurance. That's as much hail as we're getting. And with climate change, that's what they're predicting for here is just more hail anywhere there's hail. So it's nice. We're going to grow more root vegetables. Do you have a farming superpower? I think what I'm good at is just kind of putting the big picture pieces together and seeing opportunities and kind of being able to jump a bunch of steps into the future and see what can be. I think that's a, my skill, but also my uh, detriment a lot of times because I see too many opportunities and then turns out somebody actually has to do the work to make them happen. Your superpower and your kryptonite all at once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice and bundled. And you are a relatively young farmer, but if you could go back in time and tell your just getting started farmer self one thing, what would it be? I would tell myself that I like I don't need to go so fast that I can take a little bit more time and yeah, especially over the last couple of years. Like I'm twenty six and a lot of my friends are just now trying to decide like what they really want to do. And they've just been kind of playing and doing all sorts of fun stuff. And part of me wishes I would have spent more time doing that in my early 20s. And But at the same time, I'm really happy with what I've built and where I'm set up now. And now I can have more fun that things are more established. But I think I just tell myself that I don't need to be in such a rush to to get it all done. And I, and I would tell myself to hire a bookkeeper day one. <laughs> <laughs> I think every, every farmer should do that. The advice, that's the advice that your, your beginning farmer self might've been more likely to take. Probably. <laughs> Dylan, thank you so much for being part of the farmer to farmer podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 146 of the farmer to farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for strike. That's S-T-R-I-K-E. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. 
and by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit OsborneSeed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. If you enjoy the show, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review, talk to us in the show notes, tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.